this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Bonnie McBird about The Three Locks, the prequel to her mystery series featuring Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Sherlock Holmes, like the characters of Jane Austen's literary world, has become the subject of more books and movies in the last few decades than during the lifetime of his creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. After inventing new cases set in 1888 to 1890, Bonnie McBird here moves back in time to 1887, where Holmes and Watson must confront a set of problems, both personal and professional, each with its own twist. We start with the author's own explanation of how these novels came into existence. Prologue. When a mysterious woman going by the name of Lydia offered me a cache of unpublished tales written by Dr. John H. Watson some years ago, I was astonished to discover previously unknown adventures he had shared with the master detective and his most admirable and unusual friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. It soon became apparent that there was a reason within each of these newly discovered tales for Watson not to have made them public at the time he released the others. By the others, of course... I mean those which were brought to light by Arthur Conan Doyle. Dr. Doyle's precise role in these, be it literary agent or in some way promoter, remains buried in the sands of time. And now, please join me in welcoming Bonnie McBird. Hi, Bonnie. Uh, Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Great. Thank you, Carolyn, for having me. Tell us first about your career in Hollywood and in the theater. How did you get started and what did you do there? Um, Well, I spent about 30 years in in Hollywood doing a real wide variety of things. Uh, I got my degree, um, my master's degree was in film. And so I moved down to Los Angeles from the Bay Area, uh, intending to, I thought, produce, really. Um, and I got a few, you know, entry-level jobs. And then I got kind of a big break by getting a job at Universal Studios, that led to my being um, the story editor for feature films for four years. Story editor works very much like a book editor, uh, only on scripts. So what I did was I read every draft of every screenplay that was in development, and I did notes, and I read sort of the top-level scripts that were submitted for purchase. I attended many meetings with the writers, et cetera. So it was pretty much functioning like an editor does. Um, and it was a tremendous training ground for later writing fiction, uh, long, long form fiction, because um, story, a screenplay 
writing is very structured uh, and it, you know, it moves. <laughs> it's very visual and it moves and so forth. And, um, and I think having to learn to adhere to that structure was, um, you know, it was useful. It was really quite useful to me. Anyway, I did that for four years. I left to become a screenwriter and I did that for a number of years and I wrote on spec and sold a bunch of scripts. One of them was made into the movie Tron um, and then I did that for a while. Then I ran a production company for, uh, gosh, 11 years, I think. And then I was an actor for another 10 years. <laughs> and, uh, and then eventually I, I turned to novel writing. And uh, at what point did you get interested in the idea of writing fiction, especially novels about Sherlock Holmes? Well, I, I think, you know, every writer <laughs> wants to write a novel. That's just kind of, uh, you know, we all probably have a novel in us, right? Um, and I've always been attracted to uh, the mystery genre, specifically. But I've loved uh, Victorian England, I guess. Victorian England is sort of a, a land of dreams to me, as it is, I think, for many, many people who grew up reading a lot of uh, late Victorian literature uh, as kids, you know, because there's all the great adventure stories, of course, you know, not only Conan Doyle, but, you know, Kipling and Jack London. And I, I mean, there's just so many, you know, great stories for kids. Um, and I grew up reading these and also just kind of socially for people of my generation, um, uh, so many exciting things were coming out of England at the time that I was growing up. You know, there was Haley Mills and James Bond and the Beatles. And, uh, you know, so pop culture uh, in my formative years was very, um, <laughs> very British oriented. So that combined with the stuff that I'd read and loved as a kid um, just made me kind of inclined to want to write in that time and place. Um, so he, Sherlock Holmes as a character was so deeply appealing to me. Um, he's, he's been around for 130 years and he is arguably the most famous fictional character of all times. So for example, you can go anywhere in the world in the most remote place. And if you show a picture of a deer stalker and a magnifying glass or a pipe, Everyone knows who that is. You know, the, the, the recognition of this character is literally worldwide for 130 years. So why is that? There's something incredibly uh, appealing to kids, especially, about the notion of a guy who just is a Superman based on his brains. And he is arguably the first super, you know, superhero. And because his, his intellect is you know, which is almost magical. It sounds almost magical. And yet it seems also very real. So it seems attainable. It seems like something we could work at and become. Anyway, so I loved, I fell in love with the character. The, there's lots of reasons to fall in love with Sherlock Holmes, not just that he's a brain and he's exciting. and But the friendship in these books is um, absolutely critical to their to their appeal, I think. Um, kids, you know, kids are always wanting a friend, uh, especially really bright kids. Bright kids sometimes feel uh, isolated. Um, and here's Sherlock Holmes, the smartest guy in the world, kind of lonely, not understood by a lot of people. And yet he has Watson. Uh, so there's a tremendous um, appeal there as well. 
So I'm in the somewhat odd position of having read the fourth book, which is billed as a prequel, uh, but not the novels that you've already published, um, which in some ways is better than the reverse. But uh, what can you tell us about the three previous books, Art in the Blood, Unquiet Spirits, and Devil's Dew? Um, Sure. Well, each of those books is a standalone book, so they don't really have to be read in order. I wrote them in chronological order in the sense that my first book, Art in the Blood, takes place in 1888, uh, just on the tale of the Ripper murders, although it doesn't involve them. Um, and then the second book, is in eight, uh, Unquiet Spirits, is in 1889. And the third book, The Devil's Due, is in 1890. So technically they're sequential in that sense. But as I said, they can be completely read out of sequence. And in fact, that is why uh, the publisher asked me to set the fourth book before the other three so that readers could understand that they really don't need to be read in, in sequence. They, they asked for a prequel, but to me, prequel means origin story. And I can't write an origin story of Holmes and Watson because Conan Doyle did that. And one of the things I decided, Carolyn, when I sat down to write this, well, first of all, I didn't know it was going to be a series. I, I thought I was writing a one-off. I just, I didn't really think about it. I just wrote the book I wanted to read uh, and wrote uh Art in the Blood. <clears throat> but anyway, the thing is, I, I didn't really plan in that sense. But I did decide that what I would do is not contradict anything that is in Arthur Conan Doyle's canon. So I'm very careful to set the dates and the times, the places, the things that would fit into the holes <laughs> in the calendar, and that I would try to write books uh, and that absolutely fit um, fit with the characters and the time and the place. And, and uh, I did uh, quite a bit of research on these. So, um, I don't, but let's see. What, what, did you want to know more about each book or what would, what would be best? How do you want me to tell you about them? If you could just give us a very small, uh, you know, very short description of, of what the main uh, mystery is in each book, and then we'll move on to the, the, the book, The Three Locks. Sure. Uh, the first book, Art in the Blood, um, uh, has the theme, uh, what, are the, what are the pluses and minuses of having an artistic temperament? You know, what are the gifts that that bestows and what are the, you know, limitations? And Sherlock Holmes is a man who definitely has an artistic temperament. In fact, he'd even be called bipolar in today's parlance because he's, uh, he's absolutely manic and ferocious on a case when he's working and then he goes to near collapse when he's not working, he gets very down. And, um, so he, you know, he's, he is, he's got what they call at that time an artistic temperament, even now they do. Um, but you know, there's a gift to being an artist. The gifts are, of course, you can see things that other people don't see. You can, um, you can see patterns where other people see chaos. It's a, it's a heightened perception of things. It makes him more vulnerable, though. It makes him, uh, you know, at the same time, it's a superpower in a way. It's also, you know, uh, limiting because, you know, you can get on overload quite quickly. And um, anyway, so, so uh, I wanted to show a little bit the trade-offs there, but also having to do in a broader sense with the other characters in the book. So Art in the Blood is also about... Um, uh, an art collector, and it's also about a, a young woman who's an artist. She's a cabaret singer, a really, really wonderful one. And her son goes missing. He's been kidnapped. Turns out he's been kidnapped by um, the father of the son, who's a 
married to someone else and and is quite famous. So it's a it's a complicated story. It takes place in Paris and also the north of England in Lancashire, having to do with silk mills and so forth. So um, it has, but it has a lot to do with with artists. <laughs> There's also a, a famous art collector involved in this. Um, and so that one takes place in 1888, uh, right after the Ripper events. Um, the next book, <clears throat> Unquiet Spirits. The the word spirits in the title of Unquiet Spirits refers to two things. It refers to spirits as in whiskey, <laughs> because uh, the main set of characters as a whiskey, uh, Scott, a Scottish dynasty of uh, whiskey um, distillery owner and his his sons and so forth. And uh, and spirits as in ghosts. And the theme there is is like the, if you do not deal with ghosts of your past, they will come around to bite you. <laughs> and uh, Holmes, of course, has a ghost in his past as well. So that's Unquiet Spirits. Um, and the third book is um, let's see, the third book is The Devil's Due. Uh, the Devil's Due is about um, if you decide that, to play with moral ambiguity, you will come to have to pay the devil for this. And so this is, uh, there's some politicians involved in this who are uh, doing some rather dangerous um, maneuvers for the greater good, or so they think, um, but at great cost. Um, there's, a, there's a serial murderer in this who also has, uh, feels quite justified in what they're doing. Um, and uh, at the same time, Holmes is being kind of uh, pursued uh, by a, uh, a kind of crooked cop in this who who's decided he's had enough of this upstart detective. So there's some danger for him in this one. And that's The Devil's Due. It takes place entirely in London. Uh, and then the fourth book, that brings us to The Three Locks. You, you mentioned that you want to remain within the uh, Conan Doyle canon. And... I have to say you've done a wonderful job because when I the, the first thing I noticed when I opened the three locks was how true the characters sound, you know, the the way they speak. And uh, nonetheless, I suspect you have your own take uh, on Holmes and Watson. You mentioned that he would be considered manic depressive Holmes, not Watson, obviously. <laughs> um, is there something that you feel that you you yourself have added to the depiction of Holmes and Watson from the canon? Oh, that's a good question, Carolyn. I, um, it's not my intention to impose a new idea or my own interpretation of Holmes. Because, uh, however, as he was created by Conan Doyle, he remains a mystery. So, for example, Conan Doyle doesn't tell us about his family life or his upbringing, other than that his family were country squires, that means landowners, so therefore a certain degree of wealth, what degree we don't actually know. Um, we also know that he went to university but either quit or was sent down, we don't know which, we don't know what he studied, and we don't know which university, although most people think it has to be Oxford or Cambridge. And the, people have argued about that for 130 years. I fall on the Cambridge side for the science, but <laughs> but everyone doesn't agree with me. Anyway, so there's a lot we don't know, but there's even more interesting things we don't know about, about Conan Doyle's homes. Uh, one of the big mysteries, of course, is, is homes and women. 
uh, and this has been hotly debated for again for 130 years because he um, he's clearly uncomfortable around women. But he's uh, some people, uh, some reviewers have called him a misogynist. I would never call Holmes a misogynist. Um, there's one joking remark he makes that's, you know, about women and not being able, to, but it comes really as a joke. And as he, my impression is that he doesn't really understand women. And Holmes does not like things he can't understand. So that's not misogyny. It's just kind of inexperience. He's also clearly um, celibate by choice. Another arguable uh, fact, but at least that's how he's presented by Conan Doyle. But this, just this collection of facts and his kind of loneliness too. I mean, he's, he's a loner, except for Watson. The collection of these facts add up to somebody who's mysterious in himself. So... When you, ask, when you say, Carolyn, well, you kind of put your own take on him, I, I try to be exactly, exactly loyal to the, the Sherlock Holmes that was created. But, of course, you know, I'm tempted to look into some of those dark corners. But I also know that, the, that retaining a mystery about this character is absolutely essential to his appeal. So I would never look in all the dark corners, if you know what I'm saying. I will never put him in a romance because he just wouldn't be in one. Now, that doesn't mean I don't like books that have do other things. There's plenty of uh, different people's takes on Sherlock Holmes that are valid and quite fun. So I'm not, I'm not by saying what my choice is, I'm not knocking other people's. I mean... Uh, like Laurie King's fabulous, you know, series, for example. Uh, I love that. But I, you know, I'm just choosing to do this other thing. And so what I, my choice is to try to try to extend the canon and stay absolutely true to it. But because, because I'm writing long form, uh, you know, as I said, uh, Conan Doyle wrote 56 short stories and four novellas. And the novellas... Um, all of them had long extended sections where Holmes wasn't even there. So uh, he, Conan Doyle used those novellas to make them kind of grander historical epics rather than uh, the short stories that just totally Holmes dealt with. So my choice in writing a novel, before I sat down to do it, I, I thought long and hard about how I wanted to treat Holmes and Watson in this, and I decided that I would that they there needed to, first of all there needed to be a theme in because it was a novel, um, and readers of historical fiction I'm sure will will appreciate that because just setting something in a in a, a different historical time period automatically colors it and automatically slants it toward asking questions, social questions, science questions that, that we don't, that either we don't face now or we continue to face and, and, and comparing the, t the time of the, the late 19th century in England is actually, there's so many parallels to today. Uh, and, and, um, so it's, it's a very exciting thing to do, but I guess the point I'm saying is that by choosing to do a long form 
put Holmes and Watson in long form, by necessity, there are going to be some differences. So one is a little more character development, and two is some more thematic emphasis, and three is I really want, I had the opportunity to place this a little bit more in historical context. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I really appreciated that. I like the character development. Um, I always found Arthur Conan Doyle very frustrating in that respect. But I get what you're saying about the mystery, and I think you handle it. I think you balance it very well. Uh, So let's get to this novel. Uh, The novel opens with Watson receiving an unexpected treasure, which turns out to be the first of your three locks. Um, Tell us a bit about that, the setup. I mean, not the whole story. Sure. Um, uh, The three locks... um Actually, when I, I pitched the title before I knew what the locks were, <laughs> uh, I have to mention that because I, um, you, you've probably heard this, this, uh, the difference between uh, writers who write novels, there's pantsers and plotters. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Karen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> pants for those who might not know, pantsers are those who fly by the seat of their pants and plotters are those who outline it copiously ahead. In fact, I'm actually a combination, and most people are. But, but, but I lean toward. If I had to lean toward one, it would be pantsing. And most people do not think that mystery writers pants, but frankly, most of the ones I know do. Anyway, so I pitch. Really, I knew the three locks had meat. I knew there was something there, but I didn't know what exactly the three locks were. But I decided that the first, one of them had to be a locked box, and it would. And also, I I really wanted to delve into Watson a bit in this. That was a conscious choice. So I had the opening uh, chapter happen, and he uh, what arrives. First of all, it's a heat wave in London. He's sweltering at 221B, and Holmes has been absent and and just like not paying attention, <laughs> not bringing him along in the cases, and he's just sitting there, just mad and sweltering. And through the mail comes a package, and it's addressed to him, and it's from an aunt he didn't know he had. It's She's a, a half-sister of his father. He didn't even know about her. And she has had this thing in her possession for years, supposed to have given it to him on his 21st birthday. It's something from his mother. And um, he opens the thing, and his mother, by the way, died just before giving it to this woman mysteriously he opens the thing and it turns out to be a beautiful engraved silver box that has an absolutely impenetrable lock and he's you know struggling he, he wants to know what it is what is it and uh, watson and holmes comes back and he says drop that you know don't stop put it down <laughs> because he immediately sees that it could be a dangerous thing um i did a lot of research on locks and uh, i even visited the historical museum of locks which is in rugby england (laughs) and in fact there are locks that are 
unbelievably dangerous that can, you know, things come out of them. There are ones where you, if you put your eye down to look into it, I mean, a thing can come out and impale your eye. There's stuff that are they're poisonous locks, all kinds of dangers can actually be um, wired into a lock, explosives and other things. Anyway, so, so he has immediate concern. Well, anyway, uh, those immediate concerns are okay, but, but still the thing will not be open. So that is something that persists through the story is this mystery of what has his mother, his mother left it for him. He was supposed to receive it on his 21st birthday, but now he's, you know, in his thirties and he hasn't gotten it yet. (laughs) So he's curious. Anyway, so they go through, through the story, trying to get that thing open. Of course, eventually do with, with at cost though. Um, So that's the first lot. There are two cases that um, that Holmes and Watson end up um, addressing in this book, and they are somewhat connected, although they're mostly independent. Uh, so, yeah, tell us about the the first case, which is the second lock. Yes, um, the second lock has to do with um, uh, a traveling. Uh, magician escape artist kind of a little bit modeled on houdini but but his own guy his own self is a man named the great borelli <laughs> and his wife elaria borelli uh two italian uh performers turns out that she actually invents his his tricks and 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 designs them she appears on stage to be his assistant you know <laughs> the vanna white here it is kind of <laughs> assistant uh but in fact she's the designer of his of his uh, uh illusions anyway um so he uh he's an escape artist and one of the things he does is escape from you know straight jackets and out of a a tank of water all chained up and, you know, those various kinds of things that Houdini did. Uh, and he has a very special, special um, uh, illusion called the cauldron of death. And he gets inside something that looks sort of like a bathysphere and it's all copper and riveted and so forth. And it's set over flames and it, you know, heats up and he, you know, magically survives this and so forth, except he doesn't. <laughs> So that's the second. That's the second story. Is what happened to this guy? Holmes uh, takes a very personal interest in uh, Dario Borelli's skills as an escape artist, which is actually kind of amusing because Watson keeps finding him in all these you know bizarre poses. Um, although the attempts have serious implications later that we're not going to divulge. Uh, but what drives Holmes to reproduce um, Borelli's feats? Um. He loves a challenge. <laughs> it's probably bored, frankly. But also, he he he's known in the stories to to want to take on physical challenges. He's uh, in spite of being primarily an intellect, and that's how we think of him as the man of great deductions, great observational capacity. But he also is very physical, and it, you know, it's funny because people have complained sometimes about the Robert Downey Jr. films as being too, you know, active, and he's a martial artist, and he's this, that. And they, well, he is in the in the books actually, and so he, you know, he uh, in the in the original Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes survives falling into you know quicksand, uh, being nearly strangled. He has his teeth knocked a tooth knocked out in a train station. And he's, he gets in a fight with somebody and sends the other guy home in a box or in a cart or whatever. In other words, there's a lots and lots of action. It's just some of it is off stage, like it's alluded to or, or it's told about later. He's also nearly killed in one, one of the stories. Um, but it's, 
a Conan Doyle doesn't put it front and center like it would be in a movie, but it is there. Uh, the, and Holmes has this kind of urge to challenge himself physically. So, um, you know, that is very much within the character as as created by Doyle. So, so he, you know, yeah, he just sees this guy and goes, I, I, I could do that. <laughs> I, I, I want to do that. So he, he's, he starts uh, training himself and he gets the notes on how it's done from Ilaria Borelli. And he starts training himself to see if he can escape from this straitjacket. By the way, I should mention that in my books, uh, Holmes and Watson are in their early and mid thirties. So they're still young men. Um, often we think of them as older because, you know, uh, Often they're like in their 50s, 60s and up in the movies. For some reason, Holmes is often portrayed as a man in his 60s. But they're in their 30s in these books. Uh, if you look at when, when they were supposed to be born and it's 18, 1880s, they're in their 30s. So, so they're kind of young, you know, vital, <laughs> uh, very athletic young men. So, so, you know, he takes it as a personal challenge to, uh, to do this. I think it's quite fun. It is fun. It's fun to read. Um, so let's skip over to the second case, uh, which is the third lock in the most literal sense in some ways. Um, and uh, it's initiated by the arrival of one Deacon Peregrine Buttons, which is a deliciously observed Victorian name. Um, who is he and what does he want from Holmes? Well, Peregrine Buttons is a young man who is a deacon on his way to becoming a priest, unfortunately miscast in this role because he has fallen madly in love with one of his parishioners <laughs> and longs for her, although he hasn't a chance in, in hell <laughs> to get her. Um, but anyway, he's a, he's a young, earnest uh, fellow who is worried about this young lady, uh, and her name is Dilly Wyndham or Odelia Wyndham. And he's worried about her because um, she's a very rebellious young woman and she's very unhappy at home. Her father is a very famous Don at um, Cambridge. Um, and she's, he's also a bully. He's just kind of a terrible dad. <laughs> he's awful. And there's, he has two daughters. She's an older, older sister of this girl. Anyway, um, and she has a very unhappy home life. So she, she's very creative and she's very smart. And she makes a, a kind of a secret second life for herself. And she keeps disappearing. And Peregrine Buttons doesn't know what's happened to her, but he, he's worried about her. And he comes to Holmes. He travels down from Cambridge to Holmes and Watson and says, you know, I'm worried about this girl. She's in my uh, parish and, and she's in a study group and, and she's th this and the other and she's not showing up and I'm worried about her. And it turns out, well, the family isn't worried at all. And so Holmes says, well, if the family's not worried, you should not be worried. Just let it, you know, I'm not taking this case. But then uh, her doll, which a uh, kind of a baby doll that has been created to look like her, which they did back then, um, has been found in the Jesus lock floating with its arm uh, dismembered. Now the Jesus lock, I that one, uh, that's the third lock of the three locks. The Jesus lock is obviously a, a lock of the kind that changes the level of the water in the river cam so that boats can go through. And it's a real thing. And I, when I heard the name, the Jesus lock, I, I didn't really fully know what it was, but I knew I had to use it. <laughs> it was just like the Jesus lock. What is that? Anyway, it I went there, went to Cambridge um, and did research 
and I went to the place. The place itself, it, it's quite dangerous, actually, because it's the the changing of the levels of the water is very dramatic. It's very fast, and the it, it'd be very easy to be sucked into the the channels that are pulling the water from one direction to another. Um, even a strong swimmer, I think, would not be able to manage easily anyway. And, uh, and in fact, this is very weird, but the, the day that I went to Cambridge and, and when I went to see the lock, uh, it turns out that uh, somebody had drowned in it the week before, actually. So it, it really is a dangerous place. And it's also a beautiful place. It looks so idyllic there. Um, it faces onto the backs of the college and uh, of Jesus College, and uh, and it's just gorgeous. It's a stunningly beautiful area. All of Cambridge is, is fascinating. But another reason I wanted to use Cambridge was um, the Cavendish Laboratories, where some of the most exciting science of the time was being done. And that was something that just pulled me in, Carolyn, because I, I'm married to a scientist, and uh, I started talking to him about Cavendish Laboratories, and he gave me all kinds of great ideas. And so that led to uh, some of the subplots and the one that connected the magician to to the laboratory. But um, so anyway, uh, the science, actually the science and the medicine of the time are things that really draw me to to this period. You know, I think when we get in, interested in historical fiction, there are different gateways for us to, to become sucked into this stuff. Like, uh, you know, some people are coming through the clothing. They, they just love the, the clothing and the look and the et cetera. Some people like are fascinated by the changing social mores, some people, et cetera. Uh, one of the things that really pulls me to the um, late 19th century is is the scientific um, advancements that were going on then. And Holmes is an amateur scientist. He actually has a chemistry set up in his sitting room. And he's m- better than an amateur. I mean, he's he's quite knowledgeable in science. And in fact, Conan Doyle has written that he, with his own little setup in his own little lab there, he's found a reagent that will react to human blood and nothing else. So, in other words, that's something extremely useful for his field. So anyway, in fact, what's interesting is something like that was discovered right about that time, very pretty close to the time that that Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle obviously kept up, you know, with with the scientific stuff of the day. Anyway, so so the Cambridge Labs was another reason to... um, to set to set this in Cambridge, I mean the Cavendish Labs. Sorry. And what is it about that bro- that doll that you mentioned that causes Holmes to change his mind and take the case? Um, well, it, it's found uh, with its arm torn off in, in the Jesus lock, and there's something. Uh, there's a stain on the uh, those those dolls were made. Um, they had like porcelain heads uh, and arms sometimes and legs, but the body of the doll was a, like a a stuffed cloth uh, body. And so on the body of the doll, there is some blurred writing, unfortunately not written in indelible ink, so pretty much illegible, but you can see a couple little letters at the sides. Um, So there's there's clearly uh, the doll has been dismembered and there's a note on it. And so Holmes decides this is clearly a threat. And that plus the fact that she's missing, even if her parents are not worried, Something is not right, and at that point, he he agrees that there is uh, possible danger to 
this young woman. What would you like people to take away from the three locks and the series as a whole? Oh, that's a good question. What do I want them to take away? Well, first of all, they're escapist literature. I want people to have a really good time. <laughs> I want people to be transported back in time to the late 19th century to feel totally immersed in it and to feel totally pulled along on the mystery of this stuff. But enjoy the ride with these two best friends who are also quite funny. <laughs> I, I enjoy being in the company of Holmes and Watson and I want my readers to, to share that. Um, you can hear the siren probably behind me. I don't know if you can hear that, but I'm, I'm right, I'm right uh, at, at practically at Baker Street, by the way, in London, as I'm talking to you. Anyway, um, so I want them to enjoy the camaraderie, the friendship of these two, and totally immerse in the story and be pulled along. So to me, Conan Doyle was an absolutely master storyteller. I mean, there's so many great things. There's, you know, all the science, there's the, the great characters, all the deductions, and there's, you know, so many wonderful things about his writing. But essential storytelling was his uh, his secret power. <laughs> and so um, what I'm hoping for is that when people pick up these books, they can't put them down, and they just have the best time. And at the end, they go, oh, I didn't know this, that, and the other about that era or that place, that time and place. I have a set of um, annotations um, to each of these books, and it's on my website, which is at www.macbird.com, just my last name, macbird.com. These annotations talk about the historical times and places um, and things that are mentioned in the books, which might be fun, for, particularly for some, some of your listeners, I think. Because it, it was stuff that it, it, during my research I just found absolutely delightful. So, uh, but you have to be careful as a storyteller. You don't want a research dump into the book. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and um, one of the things I'm doing in these books, and I hope that readers will take away, Conan Doyle was, um, he had a particular voice in storytelling. And there's a reason that they're really popular 130 years later. And in looking carefully at what he does, it seems to me he's, first of all, he's created a narrator in Watson that is just a lovely man to be inside his head. He is a, he's an adventurer. He's a bit of an adrenaline junkie. He is, um, he's a ladies man. He's a crack shot. He's a, a bit of a gambler, but he's essentially a really decent man. And his worldview is an extremely comfortable one to put on. He's, um, he doesn't suffer fools. I mean, not, he's not as, you know, impatient as Holmes, but he, he sees people for what they are. Holmes chides him and says, you see, but you do not observe. That's not really true. Watson does observe. He's a very good observer and being in his head and being pulled along in these stories is just a really pleasant ride. Man is a really nice man. I, I love being in his head. So I think readers, that's what I'd like readers to take away, is to enjoy seeing all this through Watson. And what about you? Are you already working on something else? This book has just come out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am working on the book number five of the series. <laughs> Yes, book number five, which is uh, called The Serpent Under, and I'm uh, working on it. In fact, I spent hours on it today, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward on this one to, to getting out 
for some research, I, I usually go to the locations and really, you know, scout them in, in very intensively um, and have found some wonderful detail that way. But I only got to Cambridge once and for this last book and then lockdown and I wasn't able to go back. Um, so I had to, you know, source it differently. But um, this one I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, to move around a bit. Well, we look forward to seeing it. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. You're welcome. My great pleasure, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Bonnie McBird about the three locks. Find out more about her at macbird.com. That's M-A-C-B-I-R-D.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.